Amen. Good morning, family. It's good to see you. I'm super glad you're here. I'm excited about today. Why don't we get our Bibles out? Open to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, or actually chapter 2. Sorry about that on the screen. 1327 is the correct page on the Pew Bible there in front of you. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, welcome to those of you that are joining us online. Uh, we're grateful for you, thankful to be able to offer you this content, but also cautiously doing so, praying that you don't uh, ignore the warning of, and the command of Hebrews 10.25 not to forsake the assembling together. My, my, my. How life and Scripture collide just continuously in our lives personally and as a fellowship and just listening to those testimonies and thinking about what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks and what we'll talk about today. It's just a marvelous thing to see God working in the details, speaking to his people, reminding you how much he loves you. He loves us and he talks to us and he wants these things for us and it's exciting. It really is. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for reconciling us to you. Thank you that we are now not a people, but we are your people. We're not, we're not wandering up on this earth without purpose or direction. But Lord, because of your work on the cross, God, we are your adopted sons and daughters. We get to live life for your glory. We get to be an influence in a dark and difficult world. We get to be together and encourage one another. We get to grow together. We get to see lives of other people transformed around us as our own lives are being transformed. God, there's so many reasons why we should be grateful this morning. And we come to this time just excited about the possibility of what you might do through your word. We recognize the power of your words to transform our lives, to pierce into the deepest hurts and the, the most far-removed areas and pull that out into the light and change it. So God, make us whole today. Find any place in us that's not right with you and do what only you can do. We promise to give you the glory and the praise for all of it. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Remember a couple weeks ago, I talked about how a lot of times uh, we get a little confused and we, we think of uh, the world as being this epic battle between good and evil and God and Satan are battling. And I told you, well, that's not really how that works. Um, there's really no epic battle. 
Uh, Christ won the battle on the cross. It's over. It's won. It's completed. It's finished. Uh, Satan knows that. It's just not uh, ultimately been done. It's, it, the, the, the final blow hasn't been delivered, but defeat of evil has already been established. And the reason there's a window in the middle is because God is redeeming people still. The, the opportunity for people to come to him is still there. But listen, when, when the time comes and the King of kings and Lord of lords comes crashing through the sky at the sound of the trumpets, um, there, there won't be a big battle. God's going to annihilate his enemies in, with just the words of his voice. There's no battle. There's no battle. So the Bible says, as we were talking about this a couple weeks ago, I told you, the Bible says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness in this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And I pointed out, it doesn't say God doesn't battle or God battles. It says we do. We do. Now, we're the ones that are battling. See, we're in the, the midst of this. We're the ones wrestling. And what is the battle? I explained to you that the battle is over influence. That's what the battle is, is that God is uh, orchestrating influence through his people, and the enemy is orchestrating influence through the world. And those two things are colliding. And that's the mechanism by which God is redeeming people. You just heard three videos. And it, just like the hundreds of other videos that you've heard sitting in this church, every single one of them has a component where someone executed influence in their lives that led them to belief in Jesus, right? So I don't need to convince you of this because you know this is how it happened in your life and you just heard three people all say the same thing. That people, you as a church, influence people that come into here as God brings them here. You influence people that you live around, that you work with, and the world is trying to constantly undo that, unravel that. And so I, I said two weeks ago, that every move God makes. I, I told you to imagine a, a chess game as God's moving pieces and Satan's trying to counter him. And, and every move that, that God makes in our lives is about influence. And every move that the enemy makes in the world is about influence. See, influence equals glory. That's what it's about. Well, you, if, you in, if you have influence in this world for the kingdom of God, what is that? What does that lead to? Glory. It's about glory. And Satan's trying to unravel that and undo that and, and stop that. Okay, so that was two weeks ago. Then last week we celebrated the Lord's Supper, and now we come to this next section in 2 Corinthians. Now I want you to look in chapter 2. I want, I want us to start by drop down to verse 11. Verse 11, 2 Corinthians 2, 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. Or in the ESV, so that you would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. 
I want to think about this for a second. This, that's important because if I was reading the Bible and I got to that verse, I would, I'd put the brakes on right there and go, ho, 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 ho. I'm going to have to back up a minute because I need to know for sure what that's talking about. I mean, I'd immediately ask this question, well, well, what are Satan's designs or what are his devices? In other words, well, I want to know that. Don't you want to know that? You ought to want to know that. And then how are we outwitted by them? Because I don't want to be that. So what in the world is the Bible talking about? What is the answer to these questions? All right, let's find out. Look at starting in verse 3. Here we go. Paul says, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those for whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was afflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up by too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven the one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. Huh. Well, let me, let me remind you of a couple things. See, Paul has been under attack at the church at Corinth, this church he loves. He, he founded, he's led most of these people to faith in Christ. He has a deep longing for them. He's left there since 1 Corinthians. He sent what's called the severe letter, which is not part of the Bible, but he sent a severe letter correcting a, a situation because a lot of things had erupted there and there was false teachers that were trying to discredit him. We've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. And so all this stuff had been going on and they were mad because he didn't come back to visit. Remember last week and the reason he didn't come a second time to visit was because he didn't want to have a, a, a bad visit with people that he loved. He wanted it to go good. And it all makes perfect sense. So... This, in this severe letter, what he's referring to in this text is that there was one of these people who had started discrediting him and, and speaking poorly about him and spreading lies about him and things of that nature. And Paul addressed that issue with the church at Corinth. He addressed the fact that, hey, you're going to have to do something about this. You can't just ignore this. And so they, they did. They confronted the man, they uh, disfellowshipped him, and uh, so apparently he was unrepentant, and they 
kicked him out of the church. And then some time had passed, and, and Paul had gotten word from Titus, who had went and visited. This man repented. Wow. He's repented, and, and he realizes the, the mistake that he made. And so the actions that the church took actually worked. So you would think, hey, amen, that's the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story. See, what happened was he repented. And undoubtedly, when Titus came to visit, Titus ran into him and he said, you know, explain to Titus his repentance and how he longed to be back together with the church. But the church was unwilling. The church was still angry and hurt and bitter and wouldn't receive him back. Some of you might think, well, what's the big deal? See, some of us in the room, if we were Paul and we heard that, we'd be happy. We'd say, good, that sorry sucker deserves that. I'm glad they dropped the hammer on him for all the things that he was saying about me. But, see, that's not what happens. Instead, it made Paul deeply concerned. Paul was greatly burdened by this situation. Because, see, Paul didn't see this as a simple need to forgive. And if God will help you, you will see some things this morning that you probably have never seen before. It wasn't just a, a simple issue of needing to forgive. See, in Paul's eyes, knowing what Paul knows, walking with God like Paul walks, Paul understood that this issue was Satan staging an invasion into the Corinthian church. You see, he, he knew this was a big deal. So that's why he says, lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we're not ignorant of his devices. So let's talk about this for a minute. Let's understand what, what's going on here. So if you have your listening guide, the first thing is, well, we must not be ignorant of what? In the way that we view the church. We must not be ignorant in the way that we view the church. You have to have a proper view of the church in order, in order to function properly as a Christian within the context of a church. Because you can't function as a Christian without the context of a church. That, those two things can't work together. So notice what he says in verse 5. See, but if anyone has caused grief, now we know who we're talking about, this person who was, who was lying and causing all these problems for Paul. If anyone has caused grief, he has, not caused, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. See that? See, what Paul's saying is, I'm not the one who has been most affected by this. All of us are. You see how differently Paul sees the church than most people today? See, he's saying, yes, though it affected me, but I'm part of you. And so what's at issue is, is that it affected us. 
Now, Paul's not just, you got to understand, that this is why, why we didn't just do a study through 2 Corinthians. That's not what we did. What did we do? We studied 1 Corinthians for a year almost. Then in the middle, we didn't just do anything. We studied Hosea for very strategic reasons. And now we're studying 2 Corinthians. It's not, you know, I'm not just sitting in my office going, oh, what do we want to do tomorrow? What are we going to, you know, that's not how this works. There's so much prayer and just asking God to help us and speak to us and lead us and guide us goes into these decisions. So what's going on here? What, what do you mean it's not about me, it's about us? Well, what has Paul taught us? Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 12? For as the body is one and as many members, but as all, we're all members of that one body being many, we're one body, so also in Christ. Then he went on and he said, and if one member suffers, remember this? This was months ago, but you know this. If one suffers, all the members suffer. Or if one, one is honored, then all rejoice in it. Now you are the body of Christ, the members individually. You see that? He's just, he's just, he's just showing you what he's already told us. He's saying, this is how this works in real life. Here's a moment where what I said back then, yes, that's why I think the way I think. That's why I see this the way I see this. Because this is the way God sees, sees it. See, he's saying you're being outwitted because you've forgotten that the church is a family. See, you think every Sunday morning the first thing I say is just random? You think that? You think I just say anything? Hey, good morning. How you doing? Hope you had a good coffee this morning. I don't say that. I say good morning, family, for a reason. For a reason. See, a family is a connected system. It's a connected system where the behavior of one affects all. That's not new information, is it? No, everyone in here knows that. Because you had some degree of a family growing up, so you know that. Or you're in some degree of a family now. If you're a parent, you know this. No matter what age your child is, if your child suffers, what happens? You suffer. Why? Because it's a family. See, if you, if you have a prodigal child, it doesn't matter what age they are, you suffer. And if the family's healthy... You know, one of the ways you can tell the health of a family is the degree to which they get this. Because siblings grieve over other siblings. And what did Paul say? When one's honored all. See, in a healthy family, like if, you're, if you have a healthy family and, and, and you're one of the kids in the family, I don't know, is, is elected to Congress or wins a gold medal at the Olympics or whatever. 
In a healthy family, everyone would rejoice in that, right? But if the family's not healthy, you have jealousy and resentment and, yeah. See, in a healthy family, everyone benefits from the good, but everyone suffers from the bad. You got that? Yes. I mean, you should know this. So Satan's design, listen very closely to what I'm about to say. You need to understand this next sentence. Satan's design is to get family members to act like individuals. You got that? His design is to get family members to act like individuals. If you have a jacked up family, I just told you why it's jacked up. You got people in there who act like individuals. And when that happens, your family goes haywire. See, whenever we focus on ourselves instead of our kingdom influence, we get outwitted. See, when you are part of the family of God, in the family of God, it's always about what? Influence. Your life is about influence. The family is about influence. It produces glory, see? It's always influence. But whenever, whenever you get the priorities mixed up, whenever you focus on your, listen, someone in a family focuses on themselves, bingo. Problems. 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 Look, so look at what happens. Verse 6. So this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. In other words, he wrote the severe letter. He said, you got to do something about this. They did. They, they listened to what he said. And he says, praise God, it was sufficient. Verse 7. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one is swallowed up with too much sorrow. See, he repented. You did the first step right, but then you got hung up. You forgot. You got your priorities mixed up. You see, here's the thing. The, the, the man who, who, who we're talking about, and there's a very good reason why it's not, he's not named or not, because by the grace of God, listen, that might be your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, and you'd be bummed out right now. See, you don't want to know that. But he repented. He gets it. See, what happened is he got disfellowship. He, when he got outside the church, he realized, wait a second. My life's not right without the church. I can't. This, this is, he longed for what he had lost. He longed for reconciliation with his brothers and sisters. What, what is supposed to happen, happened. And so Paul is now advocating for the one who was attacking him. And why? Because, listen, Paul understands the priority of influence over individualism. He gets this. 
You need to get this. This will, this will revolutionize your life. Your, this will radically change your usefulness in the kingdom of God, your productivity in the kingdom of God. When, when you ask yourself, listen, I mean, I love you. Many of you have been in this church longer than me. And over the last 25 years, you look around and you see people advancing in sanctification two, three, five, ten times faster than you. They've left you in the dust. Let's just be honest. Some people just grow like wildfire. They get this. The reason why God uses some people in amazing, incredible ways is because they get this. If you don't get this, it's never going to be you. I'm telling you. And a lot of you are sitting there like, I don't get the big deal. That's your problem. That's your problem. That's why you don't change. I love you. I want for you. I want you to be everything God wants you to be. But you have to understand this principle. Anywhere people gather, anywhere people gather, disappointment takes place. You know that? <gasps> really? Not in a church, because it's a church. Come on, dummy. You're here. What do you think's going to happen? Anything you're a part of is going to be jacked up, because you're a part of it. If people gather, there's going to be disappointment, right? So don't be surprised by that. When it happens, just humble yourself and apply God's word to the situation and keep on rocking. That's how you, all the time, pastors say, I don't know how, how, how have you spent your whole life in one church? This. What do you think? Is this a perfect church where no one, not even close. But I get this. See, anywhere people gather, there's going to be sin. Because we're sinners. So putting the influence of the kingdom of God first is so key. And what it does, it protects us from being outwitted by the enemy. So we must not be ignorant in the way that we see the church. So important. Number two, we can't be ignorant in the way we respond to repentance. See, now we have to have a personal conversation. We got to see the church right, but then we also have to see repentance right. See, the man who sinned, sinned in a very serious way. And he sincerely repented. Now, when we get to chapter 7, I'm going to deal with 
repentance in a deep and, and thorough way. And that's not going to be today. And I'm telling you, I had a little heartburn this week because some of you in the room are, you got problems with this. And I know how you're going to try to twist what I say. You know, you're, you're just, you're just, uh, listen, he sincerely repented. Okay, this is all I'm saying. This wasn't this ongoing forever thing. Some of you just live in toxicity and have no concept of what to do about it. That's not what this is. This man did one grievous, horrible thing. The church dealt with it correctly, and he repented. Okay, this isn't the 47th time in a row that he did it. You got it? Okay. Chapter 7, we'll get there. So in the second half of verse 7, he says, You, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, which is the statement that, that leads us to, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. So this is what this text proves. Because of verse 7 and 8, and then what he says in 11, it is undeniable that unforgiveness... could somehow not be a device of Satan. Unforgiveness is always a device of Satan. Any unforgiveness in your life is a device of Satan. See, behind all bitterness, behind all unforgiveness... is a plot to ruin your influence. See, now you're starting to understand why you're stuck. You long for things, good things, but you're stuck. See, imagine this chess game. Now, now you got to understand that the, this, this, this movement back and forth between good and evil is all about influence. And so the battle rages. We're the pieces on the board, but the battle is raging over, over the, those that are, are yet to be redeemed. Do you understand? You got that? So, so God, the master who, who's clearly, he's undefeated at chess, right? He's undefeated. When he moves a piece into position of influence, what piece does he move? See, see, God has all of us at his disposal. 
So he's trying to, he's trying to reach Marie. She feels unworthy and broken because of the things in her life. And the way she sees God is completely different than the way God is. And so God loves her, and he's been working in her life. And so when he, when he moves a piece into position to influence her, which piece does he move? He can move anyone. You think he just randomly flicks a piece over there? Well, no. No. This is what I'm trying to get you to see. See, some of you are on the board, but you never get moved. You know why? Why would God move you in a position of influence? You know who he moves? He moves the people who are ready to be moved. He, moved, he's, he moves people who are already being an influence to be a greater influence. And then when he moves you, and then when you're being an influence there, he moves you to be a greater influence. See, it's, a, it's an ever-increasing level of influence unless he moved you and you just drop the ball. And then every so often he tries again and you just drop the ball. See, unforgiveness is 100% connected to usefulness in the kingdom of God. 100%. 100%. You know what I see? I see people who want, genuinely, they want. They want good things. They want to be used by God. They want to, they want to be a part of what God's doing. But it's just, it's just very little hit and miss here and there. Because this one area of their life, you're unwilling to address. I want you to notice something. See, see, Paul says that this man is in danger. If they don't forgive him, he's in danger of being overwhelmed with sorrow. So, so he's in danger of destruction, right? Yeah, clearly. And then Paul's telling the church, he's saying, you need to forgive him because you're in danger of destruction. In other words, what I'm trying to get you to see is that the linchpin is, is forgiveness. If, if unforgiveness prevails, everyone loses. The man who repented loses, and the church loses, and Paul loses. Everyone loses when you don't forgive. You think it's just you. Wake up. You're tearing apart everybody around you. And you've been doing it for years. Everyone loses. See, how, how do you tend to respond when 
when you're sinned against. You bow up, get all defensive. Some of you are like the big Facebook spar people. By the way, you embarrass me, but, you know, that's another story for another day. But Huh? What do you do when you're sinned against? What, how's, what's your response? See, that's not the hard one for me, really. I can take it. The hard one for me is the question of how do you tend to respond when someone you love is sinned against? That's the challenge for me. So let's talk about these two snares because they're big ones. The first snare is vengeance. Vengeance. Snare is a, it's a trap. But when you're ensnared, the, the, what's, what's so brutal about a snare is that a snare doesn't kill you. A snare just holds you captive. So it's worse than death because you, you exist in the snare. It'd be easier if you could just die and get out of it, but you, you're, you're ensnared in it. See, unforgiveness can, can so oftentimes be rooted in vengeance. And so underneath this, this unforgiveness that we have, whether it be against us, something perpetrated against us or perpetrated against somebody we love, is always this one central deception. The lie of, of fairness. So I don't want to... Some of you, you know, you, you've been around and you've heard me talk about this a million times. This doctrine of fairness that, that Americans love, and it's just absurd and ridiculous and foolishness. The first thing I teach my children, the first thing, literally, that's not in the Bible, it just barely missed the Bible. Like God had to edit out because there wasn't enough room. But other than that, it would have been the first thing. You don't even say fair in my house. Because when you do, I don't have to say anything because everyone else in the room goes, life's not fair. You better get it through your head. Life's not fair. And if you don't, I mean, I don't even understand how you're drinking that potion. You don't want fair. But see, in order to, to maintain this and, and have this vengeance mentality, you got to think, well, it's just not fair. It's not fair. And, and we embed safety into our, our forgiveness. In other words, I'll forgive you. I'll, I'll, I'll forgive you. My forgiveness is conditional. It's predicated on all these different things. And so here's what happens. We take the moral high ground in a relationship 
Because the, the, the person who sinned against me failed. They sinned against me. No matter how long they repent or how, how much they try to, you know, recover from. No, 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 no. It's never going to be good enough. You're not going to ever. No, mm-mm. because I'm, I, and, and see, this is the problem with vengeance. Because I want to get you back for what you've done to me. But there's no end to that cycle. There's no end to it. And so what happens is, is that unforgiveness then enslaves us as a permanent victim. So as soon as you step into the victim posture, the device of Satan's got you. Got you. He's got you. You're the victim. See, once you become the victim... Then your wound establishes your right to be the ongoing prosecutor. See, I'm the victim. You hurt me. I want vengeance. So my wound is going to create this opportunity for me to be this ongoing prosecutor. And in order to fuel my continual fire for prosecution, I've got to constantly rely on bitterness. Not just my own bitterness, but the bitterness of others. Now listen, I ain't got time to get into it, but just real quickly, it's real easy to figure out who's bitter around here. You know why? Because them birds of that feather always flock together. I know who's bitter because if I know one bitter person, all I got to do is who's hanging around them, that's the bitter team. Oh, you know, ladies. Every one of you that's all bitter about your husband, you team up. You do. Two things I know. You team up and you hate my wife. Because she won't put up with it for two seconds. You ain't coming in my house running your husband down in front of my wife. She ain't going to put up with it. She'll just say, no, shut your mouth. That's sin. You don't run your husband down. Some of y'all got the run-down husband team. It's not just women either, guys. You, you huddle up too. When you're bitter, you're going to huddle up with the bitter team always, every time, because it's got to fuel you to keep this victim mentality going. But here's the problem. You don't know the gospel. You've, you've forgotten the gospel. The Bible says that you, you can forget the gospel and become unfruitful in all your ways. That's what Peter said. You know why this will never work? Because here's the newsflash. The person who hurt you can never heal you. That's what you need to know. The person that hurt you can't heal you. So what are you doing? What are you doing? See, on one hand, you say, oh, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. On the other hand, you're miserable. Th those two things don't work in the gospel. That, that doesn't work. You, you can't stay that. That does not work. S some, something's not true in that equation. You've been outwitted by Satan. So you've got to watch out for that first snare. What's the second snare? Embarrassment embarrassment come on we got to hurry embarrassment what do i mean well you know what i mean because all of us have dealt with this 
We see we can be unwilling to forgive because the problem is is that the, 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 the sin that people commit affects us. I see I didn't do anything wrong, and you're making me look bad. You're making us look bad. You think you're sinning in a vacuum, but you're not. So whatever you're doing is affecting other people, and those other people are in danger of getting all snared up in this embarrassment. Now, here's the thing. It is embarrassing. It is painful. It is hard. It is. But, you know, yeah, I mean, sure. Of course it is. My goodness. When people act a fool, it, it makes our church look silly. It's embarrassing. What you do reflects on us to some degree. Some days I really do wish I had a little tiny church with about 40 people in it. For real. But I don't. What our kids do reflects on us as parents. What parents do reflects on the kids. Yes. It does. Sure. It's part of life. Then here's what you got to realize. Sometimes the sin of those we love reveals the reputation that we love. See, one of the things that God does through sin in close relationships is he, 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 he does a, a work in those that are affected by it. See, instead of seeing the sinner that's being seduced, Sometimes all we can see is our reputation that's being trashed. See, all we, we, we make someone else's sin about us. We won't forgive because we're mad about how their sin affected us. It embarrassed us. Mm -hmm. Well, listen. The gospel will take your mind. to the reality of what Jesus did. So for those of you in the room that are struggling because you feel embarrassment over some sin that somebody close to you, someone you love has done, you feel embarrassed by that? Jesus hung on the cross for you Naked. 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 And alone. I think you can handle a little embarrassment. Right? It's not about you and your reputation. It's about our influence. And you can't be an influence when you're worried about, you see, you're acting like an individual in the context of a family. 
That's why Jesus said, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. See, how we respond to sin reveals our true grasp of the gospel. It's that simple. The degree to which you grasp the gospel is directly related to what do you do when people sin? How do you see the church? How do you see repentance? How do you respond when you're wounded, sinned against? And how do you respond when someone you love is sinned against? There's no doubt a lot of work that needs to be done in a room this size, wouldn't you think? Sure. It's a lot. So let's get busy. Because we're a family. Let's stand. Father, we, we thank you that your wisdom is made manifest to us through your word. Lord, there's none of us in this room that would ever think of any of this on our own. Lord, we just rot away in our unforgiveness and our bitterness. We just squander all our opportunities for influence. And then one day we'd stand before you empty-handed and broken and realize what a waste it all was. But because of your word and your grace and your mercy, because you long for us to know, you speak right into these moments in our life. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for an opportunity to just respond to you. Thank you so much. We know what we need to do. God, may we do it. For our influence and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In his name, amen. Amen. I love you.